This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's always fun starting this podcast regardless of the the week and the topics and uh you know even nowadays in uh this weird era that we're living in but it's even more fun doing so as a winner sam i wouldn't expect you to know yet that feeling but uh i just want you to know how good it feels is this opener just going to turn into a monologue about you and the glory of winning and me, the sadness of losing, which is just my silence, really? And I mean, low it's be- there in the ninth inning, Julio Rodriguez stepped to the plate. Um, yeah, I uh, I am unbeaten against Sam, and we're going to spend the next 90 minutes or so talking about only that. I'm going to break down every pitch one by one from our uh, – thrilling battle let's be honest in this week's episode uh, of the show before the show recounting our uh, our the thrashing that my boys gave to you and by that i mean the one run victory uh in our, <laughs> our latest simulation of mlb the show 20 uh it was a thrill that's the whole no it's not the whole episode today we actually have a lot of really fun stuff going on but uh it's it, it was fun it, it was fun to a fault. No, it was fun. You guys should go watch it. And, and, and uh, you know, the reason we do this is because we're all baseball stars. So even having a simulation of a baseball game is something. And it gives us a chance to talk about so many prospects actually playing a game, putting on their skills in a way in the virtual space, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so so go and watch that game. Of course, it's, it's more exciting when you know that it has an exciting finish. Maybe for you at home, it's less exciting knowing that Tyler wins. I'm not going to put words <laughs> in your mouth. But... Uh, uh, yeah, now that you oh, know. Oh, was I just supposed to like tease it? Because I, yeah, I didn't have any interest in doing that. I no, just wanted to no. gloat. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's a lot more fun to actually. I mean, that's the thing right now is that we, so many networks are putting on old games, so you know how it ends. You could look it up, but right. the fun is actually in watching it happen, and even in the minutia of you know watching a two-one count in the fourth inning. Like we don't get that right now, so right. here's something that has that. But knowing that it ends with a Julio Rodriguez absolute moonshot. Just a into, bomb. Just a yeah. rocket. A missile. A splash job, really, Gave into my the team uh, the lead for good. Yeah. yeah. Into was, the bay. Uh, it was a thriller. It was a real it was a real thriller. I am I'm just proud of my boys. Uh yeah, we did US prospects against the world. Sam's team was the Durham Bulls. My team was the Albuquerque Isotopes. Uh pitted them against each other in the second of our matchups on MLB the show. As we welcome you in, by the way, to this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com, the official side of Minor League Baseball and the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. I'm Tyler Mon. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm two and oh, he's 0-2. Um my uh my win on Monday came uh not easy you know uh very well pitched game on both sides we had uh Braylon Marquez got the start for my team on the world side Sam went with Nate Pearson on the U.S. side Uh, a big three-run fifth inning for Sam's guys looked like he was going to swing that game Royce Lewis a monster homer uh to give his team at the time a four to one lead but you know we we're just we're fighters Sam we just uh we battle we're in there every pitch every at bat uh, gonna make you work for it. And in the ninth, 
you know, you gotta you gotta put this team away. Uh, you actually made a very good point at the end of the game. So you drafted Brent Honeywell. Uh, and pointed out when he came into the game how perfect it was. Brent Honeywell, Tampa Bay Rays prospect. He has actually pitched a lot for Durham in his career. He closed out a AAA National Championship win for Durham. Uh, he's been sidelined trying to come back from Tommy John surgery. He's missed the last couple of seasons. Uh, and it was so perfect to have him on in that spot. And then video game Brent Honeywell, victimized by video game Julio Rodriguez. And, uh, you know, those Mariners prospects, man, they just they do it for me. Not yeah. not really closeted Mariners fan, Tyler Mon. <laughs> Everybody yeah, knows I'm a Rockies fan, but if I had an AL team, they are the AL Rockies. We always have this discussion on Rockies and Mariners Twitter. I, I could see that. I've never thought about that. They're but the I could AL definitely... Rockies and the Rockies are the NL Mariners. Yeah. I mean, it, it also didn't help that the Brent Honeywell, uh, who hasn't actually pitched in two years because of injuries, he's on the comeback trail, seemed like he was coming back, going to pitch at some point in the 2020 season. We'll see if that happens. But uh, it didn't help that he came in and had to face the top of your lineup. Julio Rodriguez, I think, was your number two hitter. Well, 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 well. He started out facing 7-8-9, Sam. He struck out Azu Sanchez to lead off the inning, and then he gives up a single to Cabert Ruiz and a double to Vidal Brujan. And then, you know, you're just walking into the into the lion's den. Yeah, this is true. What what also hurt most about it was that no offense to Brent Honeywell, like if he's listening, he's been on the show before. He's a great interview. Um, we love talking to him any chance we get. A great storyteller as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, he comes in as the closer. I set him as the closer because I like that storyline. But when my virtual manager pulled him, they brought right. in Casey Mize, who happens to be arguably the top pitching prospect in baseball up there with a Nate Pearson and a Mackenzie Gore. And it's just like, this guy was on our bench the whole time. Yeah. Why is he in sweep up duty and not in high leverage, maybe pitching the seventh and eighth or something like it's just the, the decisions my guys made in the, the dugout were, were questionable. Let's put uh, it that way. And yet again, second game in a row, Sam Dykes are just throwing people under the bus left and right. Unbelievable. The, the lack of professionalism in that Dykstra front office. It's just stunning. Listen, it's it's organizations that win ball games. It's not players, okay? <laughs> All right, Jerry Krause. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, hey, we had a whole lot of fun with that broadcast. Uh, you can find it, of course, at MILB.com slash podcast. You can find it. Uh, you'll be listening to this maybe on Thursday. On Friday evening, it'll go up on the Minor League Baseball Facebook page. Uh, it's also on our YouTube channel as well. You can go find it. We're going to continue to do more of these and have some fun with them uh, as we get hopefully closer and closer to some real baseball. Um, there's been so much discussion about all that uh, as the months have uh, somehow pushed us into the middle of May, which is insane to me. Um, we are, uh, by the way, recording this episode of the show, the very first one that I'm doing from my brand new podcast recording studio, otherwise known as a closet in a room that I don't really use that much, and I hung up soundproofing material. Yeah, so How do I sound award winning. I mean, you sound very crisp and clear, which is <laughs> awful for me when it's just going to be you're going to use that space to just trash me the whole time. Uh, <laughs> See, I, I the trade-off like, is you sound smart on this show every week. I'm the, I'm the circus pony that uh, hey folks, how you doing? Welcome in. That's me. That's our trade-off. That's our yin and yang. I'm the buffoon, and you're the you're the brains behind the operation. And yet these brains are 0-2, and, and I just yeah, don't understand. Are. I can't comprehend it, you know? It's just... Woo! <sighs> it's not going to be the first time I heavy sigh on this podcast, by the way, this week. 
that's a that's a tease for you. Oh goodness gracious! Um, so we're uh, we're going to talk about some uh, real topics for this week. Obviously, we have uh, really had to change the format of the show, unfortunately, since the the start to uh, the quarantine chapter of our lives and all that. We uh, we don't do three strikes to talk about our our three top prospects week to week with games, minor league baseball, and all that. But we do have some things uh, that we would like to discuss and. The thing that probably applies uh, most immediately to the minor leagues is the news that the major league draft in 2020 will be just five rounds. There's been discussion of this uh, for quite some time. The major league draft has been 40 rounds in uh, in recent years. That draft throughout historically has been 60-plus rounds, 70-plus rounds. It's been insane uh, at times throughout its history. Of course, 40 rounds uh, for probably all the drafts that most of us can remember. Um, but this year... With the extreme extenuating circumstances uh, in 2020 around the world, a very shortened major league draft in uh, in 2020, and that is going to impact a whole lot of players, of course, who were anticipating, you know, this time six months ago, maybe being a sixth round draft selection or something like that. Um, it also heavily impacts what we will be discussing in terms of prospects who are coming into the game uh, in 2020, whether or not we'll get to see them on a field in 2020, of course, uh, all that and so much more. But Sam, your your thoughts on this news that uh, that has come out this week about the draft? Yeah, one other thing we should point out is that the draft is expected to be on June 10th. Um, there was some agreement between the between MLB and the Major League Baseball Players Association that they could push it back to July. Looks like it's still going to be held in early June, so at least we'll have something to talk about in that aspect about a month from now. But uh, in terms of limiting it to, to five rounds and then there's going to be a cap of signing bonuses up to $20,000 on non-drafted free agents. Uh, how is that going to affect the draft? I mean, that's probably going to mean fewer players coming in. Um, for players in the minor leagues right now, that might mean fewer are going to be cut because they don't have to make room uh, for new new players. So there's that aspect of it. But also, uh, who is going to get drafted, I think, is going to change in a big way. The, the team – the Teams that are going to benefit from this are junior colleges, uh, four-year colleges, and maybe even foreign leagues. We might see something happen like Carter Stewart went to Japan right. and is playing in their minor leagues right now because he could get a, a bit of a payday over there, stay over there for six years. He's still playing professionally, and, and he gets paid instead of having to go to college. Um, we could see some guys go from the prep ranks over there. We, we don't know. We won't see it until it, it happens. But going to junior college for a year – uh, and then being eligible for next year when the draft is expected to expand from five rounds to we'll, we'll see what that's going to be. But it's going to be bigger in 2021. Um, that could be a possibility. I think teams are going to rely more heavily on drafting college juniors and seniors and um, knowing that high schoolers have a little bit of leverage. They don't have to sign uh, for lesser amounts that teams are going to want to sign for right now because of the finances involved in this pandemic. There's not very many much revenue coming in. Uh, they don't have the money to put towards signing bonuses or so they say so they're going to want to draft college juniors and college seniors who don't have as much leverage i think a lot of high schoolers are unless they're really talented and likely to be taken in the top two rounds and we talked to somebody this week who was a second round pick coming out of high school uh, and ryan belade but you know there there will be some prep players still taken in that area but i think the third round fourth round fifth round is going to be heavily college dominated because you're going to want to sign everybody you pick at that point um and you don't want to risk it to to take a high schooler with your fifth round pick uh and then have him come in demand 
you know, above slot money that you just don't have cap space for. So that'll be interesting. It'll be really interesting to talk after the draft, maybe going into next offseason, about players who signed as non-drafted free agents. Um, $20,000 is not very much for a signing bonus. Obviously, you have to make that spread out a few years with minor league salaries being what they are. But these players will have a little bit of freedom in who they get to sign with. I know when I tweeted about the draft being limited to five rounds, a lot of people tried to say, well, well, now they can sign whoever they want. Yes, they can, but it's for significantly less money than it used to be. But still, how, what is the calculus that goes in there? Why do you choose an organization? Because conceivably, any organization now that the highest you can sign for if you were – uh, and a non-drafted free agent is $20,000, an, an organization could conceivably sign every sixth rounder. There's no cap on the amount of players you can sign. So every player who is projected to go in the sixth round, you could say, here's $20,000, come with us. And you could sign every single one of them. There's no order to this anymore. Um, so it, is it, are there going to be a couple of organizations, a couple of farm systems that really need to stock up and look at this as a way to do that? I would love to see that. Um, Maybe on the player side, you know, it it would be too bad to sign for that little, but the situation is what it is. Uh, and then we can talk to them about why they chose an organization. Maybe you're a second baseman and you look at the organization and say, listen, I looked at their depth chart. They don't have a second baseman like me. They need speed. I can provide that. That's why I signed. Or they promised me that I can move quickly. Like what what other things go into these negotiations will be really interesting once the money is capped. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate that we're not talking about the the 30th round success stories or somebody like Tarek Skubal who was taken just within the top 10 rounds is now a top 100 prospect. That's her first one first full season. Uh, it's disappointing that we can't have those discussions, but it's just going to alter what we talk about after the draft. And that'll be pretty fascinating, I think. So uh, something to keep an eye on. Obviously, something we'll be discussing as the uh, the weeks come along and we get closer and closer to that mid June date. But um, a lot of news coming up in baseball. We hope over the next few weeks in the in the positive arenas, and uh, we'll keep you updated on all of it as it pertains to minor league baseball uh, when we keep rolling toward the the later stages of May. Minor League Baseball and Feeding America have teamed up to raise funds for local food banks and to honor those risking their lives on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. For every $10 donated to Feeding America, a Minor League Baseball team will donate one ticket to a local hero. Join us in making a difference in our local communities by visiting MILB.com forward slash community first to donate today. As Sam noted uh, just a little bit ago, we had a really fun, engaging conversation with Ryan Belay, the fourth-ranked prospect in the Colorado Rockies organization. You're going to hear that coming up here uh, in just a minute. Got some good stuff with Benjamin Hill. That is two segments away. And then uh, Josh Jackson with a, a look back at a historic team from South Florida. Uh, he'll come up here in just a little bit as well. But Ryan Belay from the Colorado Rockies system joins the show next. We're under the Colorado Rockies organization on this week's episode of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com, which is a, a place where we haven't gotten a chance to visit with a lot of prospects as of late. And that is where we find the fourth ranked prospect in the Colorado system, infielder and now slash outfielder Ryan Valade, who joins the show. Uh, Ryan, it's obviously such a strange time for, for all of us. And, uh, you know, it should be over a month into a minor league season right now with you probably in Hartford. And uh, instead, we're all in this holding pattern. But what have the last couple of months been like for you? And how are you doing with everything right now? Yeah, uh, definitely a different time time right now. Um, you know, uh, it's been it's been a blessing and a curse for sure. Uh, right now, I'm uh, I've been in Oklahoma. My family just moved down to Frisco, um, so 
but we've been in Oklahoma the majority of the time. Uh, just been uh, being able to be with my family a lot. I've uh, been working out still. Uh, I get to see the girlfriend a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, it's been good, but obviously wanting to be, be on the field, uh, my family's safe. Uh, so that's obviously the biggest uh, important thing about this whole thing. And hopefully everyone else's families are doing well and safe. But, yeah, just itching to get back on the field. Um, and just I'm ready for something to come out to where we can go back and play. Let's talk about the the start to this year. Obviously, uh, so much excitement and so much promise to kick off 2020. You get the non-roster invitation to, to big league spring training and uh, get down to Arizona and get started. And then a couple of weeks uh, into everything, we go into this halt. But for those first uh, days that you were down there, what was the spring training experience like for you this year? Yeah, being invited to my first big league camp was it was really awesome, really special. Um, I got to learn uh, a lot from those big league guys. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a different it's a different game up there. Obviously, it's the same game, but the way they go about their business, the way they work. Uh, so I definitely learned a lot. Um, it was very exciting. I thought I, I did well when I, while while I was up there. Um, I had some really good feedback from the coaches and even some of the players. Uh, but you know, I soaked it all in. It's something that I'm ready to get back to next year. Um, but you know, I think it was that first big step on uh, you know my future for sure. Yeah, when you talk about that feedback, especially from players, coaches are, are there to give you feedback, but fellow players don't always do that, especially if you're the new guy in camp. Uh, what's a, right. a specific piece of feedback you feel like you're still relying on now as you go through your workouts? You know, um, just the way some of the guys were, they go, went about their business in the cage, um, you know, some of the stuff they did, um, and also on the defensive side. You know, I got to work on the left side of the infield with uh, Nolan and Trev. And just watching them, not even talking, just watching them, you know, go about their business, take every ground ball like it's like it's the ninth out or it's the last out in the ninth inning of a World Series game. Uh, you know, doing watching them go about that, it, you know, it's really impressive. So that kind of shows me what I need to do, uh, you know, to one day hopefully be like them. So. Hmm. And Tyler mentioned this from the opening there. You are an infielder slash outfielder now. I know you got some time in the outfield last fall during uh, you know some fall play, but uh, getting a little bit of time, I know you only played third base in the Cactus League, but what was it like balancing trying to learn a new position in third because you're normally a shortstop with also right. trying to learn what it's like living on the grass potentially uh, if you were to play outfield this year with Hartford? Right, yeah, you know, like you said, I've been a shortstop, you know, my whole career, my whole life, pretty much. You know, I have played third, so it was, it's a pretty easy transition over there. Obviously, I'm still learning uh, every day to get better over there, uh, but I'm feeling comfortable there. And in the outfield, you know, I didn't play any games in the outfield in spring training, uh, but every day I would do early work or uh, extra work in the outfield just to continue to feel comfortable. Um, you know, I got to watch Desmond and Hampson and Blackman do all their things out there. Uh, they taught me a lot. Um, you know, and it's definitely a work in progress, but I feel comfortable out there. I think my athletic ability will help me a lot, and my goal is to be able to play all three spots uh, and feel comfortable at each one. Ryan, the Rockies emphasize so much of that positional versatility for guys as they're climbing the ladder, and we've seen it, uh, you know, with so many who have reached the major league level. Uh, Brendan Rodgers, obviously, before the injury. Garrett Hampson mentioned who was drafted as a, a second baseman slash shortstop and now could be starting in the outfield this year. Um, for you, what was it like when they when they approached you and said, all right, we, we're obviously going to give third a go and we want to test you out in the outfield. Uh, when you first got that message, was it an exciting thing? Was it something that was a, a little bit nerve-wracking, or how did that first 
first come across to you from the organization? You know, uh, hearing that I wasn't going to play shortstop anymore, it was kind of tough, not going to lie. Uh, but, you know, I trust the Rockies. Uh, I know that they want what's best for me and what's best for them. And, you know, and that's ultimately to win a World Series in the big leagues. Um, you know, for me to be able to go to third and uh, be able to go in the outfield and play every position out there, and, uh, you know, that's where they see me fitting in the best with their club. And, you know, I trust them with that. So I was excited. You know, it was a new challenge for me. You know, I like challenges. It, it motivates me. It keeps me going. Um, you know, and ultimately, um, I think having that versatility is a big thing for me uh, as a right-handed bat. Um, you know, and ultimately, too, um, whatever gets me quickest, you know, the quickest way to the big leagues, whether that's left field, right field, center, third, second, first, anywhere, uh, you know, I just want to get up there and whatever they see me as, uh, you know, an outfield, that's, you know, that's what I'm going to do. So, Let's talk about being in the infield in big league spring training. Uh, you get to work with arguably the best left side of the infield in baseball. And it'd be one thing to just work with Nolan Arenado or one thing to just work with Trevor story, but to get to be around both of those guys day after day, um, you know, you talked a little bit about trying to soak up what all they uh, present when they're on the field, but how do you, do you, are you a guy who asks questions and tries to learn from them in that way? Do you just kind of watch the way they go about their business? What was that like being around them regularly and getting to kind of be a sponge in that way? Yeah, you know, you know, being my my first big league uh, spring training, I I was for sure just watching. Uh, you know, watch how they went about their business, watch how they, you know, took ground balls, the way they warmed up, the way they rolled out, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then as I got comfortable, you know, being there, um, you know, I started asking a little more questions. But I think you don't even have to ask questions uh, to learn from Nolan and Trev on the left side of the infield. If you watch them take ground balls every day you'll know exactly, you know, what they're working on, uh, how they go about each and every ground ball, the angles they take, the throws they make. Uh, so, you, you know, honestly, you don't even have to, you don't even have to ask questions. You just watch them, you know, uh, just be who they are and learn something from them. So. And let's pivot now to the offensive side. And part of the reason why the Rockies want to move you around is to get your bat in the lineup every day, uh, hopefully in the major leagues before long. But last year at Lancaster was kind of a breakout season for you. Uh, you had an 832 OPS all season long. You were a Cal League uh, postseason all-star. But it seemed like really in the second half is when you started to, to kick things up. Uh, what changed in that second half? You hit 327. You had an 884 OPS. Uh, it seems like things really improved there. What did you learn about yourself, or what adjustments did you make in the second half of 2019? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest things for me, you know, having success in Lancaster last year was my struggle I had in Asheville my first month. Uh, you know, I went into my first full season. I struggled that first month. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my swing, uh, and I learned a lot about pro ball uh, for sure. And uh, you know, finishing the Asheville season strong uh, gave me that confidence going into Lancaster. Um, you know, in Lancaster, I had a, I had a great coaching staff. Uh, Thompson Terrace was my hitting coach, and we worked a lot every day. Uh, early work, uh, before games, and, you know, BP. And one thing that we really worked on was being ready for that pitcher's best fastball. Uh, because whenever I'm on time for that, you know, that best fastball, you know, I think I'm a really hard out. Um, so being able to, you know, hit that middle and fastball to the pull gap, uh, very, really helped me. I started hitting some homers to the left side of the left side of the field. Um, you know, cause my strength has always been the right side, uh, right center gap. So being able to go there was, you know, my first thing, but being able to 
start pulling some pitches out of the yard for, you know, homers, doubles, triples. I think that's really got what got me going. And, you know, just, you know, staying confident with myself. And if I, you know, have one bad bat, shake it off and get ready for the next one. And what adjustments were you making to get to those inside fastballs? Because it's one thing to say, like, I'm going to start homering to left. It's another thing to pull right. that off. Uh, what adjustments did you make to allow yourself to get to those inside heaters? Right. Uh, you know, one thing for me is staying in my legs. Uh, occasionally, I'll start drifting towards the ball. And whenever you drift towards, you know, the ball, every every pitch start, looks good right out of the hand. Right out of the hand. So you start chasing, um, you know, your your eye level moves. So being able to stay in my legs, keep my head still, uh, you know, I think it allowed me to get to that pitch. Also, um, I started doing a lot of machine work uh, with, you know, high-velocity curveball machine, and I think that really, really helped me. And that's still something I do every day for my routine uh, to get me ready for, you know, 705. Ryan, the Rockies uh, take you in the, the second round, their first pick of the 2017 draft of 48th overall. But um, you're a, a Stillwater, Oklahoma guy, and you're committed to play at Oklahoma State. Uh, there are so many Rockies ties to Oklahoma State, too. Josh Holiday, the head coach there, is the, the brother of Matt Holiday and their father, such a long-time uh, involvement with that program. How strong was the pull to go to, you know, growing up in Stillwater and being committed to play for the Cowboys? Obviously, uh, second-round selection and everything that comes along with that, uh, it's probably a, a relatively easy choice, but I would imagine it was more difficult for you with those ties than if you were committed to go play somewhere out of state or something like that. What was that process like in 2017 when you were drafted? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Texas my whole life, and, you know, we moved to uh, Stillwater my senior year, so I didn't spend a lot of time in Stillwater. Uh, but the thing that was, you know, hard for me was my dad was coaching there at the time. Uh, so, you know, it would have been fun to play for him, you know, uh, go three years with him and hopefully get drafted out, out as a junior. Uh, but obviously, God had different plans for me. You know, I was blessed uh, to be selected by the Rockies in the second round. Uh, pro ball was what I wanted to do. Uh, my dad was a minor league coach for six years with the Rangers, so I knew what that uh, kind of looked like. Uh, that that really helped me. I think gave me a little advantage, honestly. Uh, but uh, once they rocked after me in the second overall or uh, in the second round, uh, you know, I knew exactly what I what I wanted to do. And college wasn't even a thought anymore. You mentioned your dad, and uh, your dad was hired this off season by the Marlins, correct? As an area scout, sort of around where your family lives now. Yes, he was. So being that uh, you've got a dad who's obviously so knowledgeable in the game of baseball and has so much coaching experience, college and minor league and all that type of stuff, um, now that he is in a role like that, how has your relationship with your dad evolved? Because that's a cool dynamic to have where it's one thing to have a dad who just knows the game. It's another one to have somebody who's so involved in what the modern game is like in baseball. Right. You know, my dad My dad has you know been a coach his whole career. Uh, and this is really the first year in a long time that he hasn't been on a field in spring. Uh, so, you know, my life revolved around the game of baseball and being on the field with him. You know, he's taught me pretty much everything I, I know about the game. If I ever have a question, I go to him. You know, he, he's my go-to. Uh, he's taught me a lot about the game, uh, the, you know, the mental side of the game, the, the, the physical side of the game, what it takes to become a big leaguer. You know, when he was with the Rangers, uh, he had that group of guys with Elvis and Odor and Gallo that came through and, all those guys are starting for the Rangers every day now. So I got to see what it was like to, you know, how he worked with them, what they said to him, what he said to them, like vice versa. And, uh, you know, it's very, it's really been helpful for me. And, you know, I'm very blessed to have him in my life for sure. And speaking of those Frisco connections, uh, you know, you talked about 
him coaching Gallo and stuff like that. But being around, we're getting you at an interesting time because, like we said, you were probably going to be at Hartford this year. Double A is right. an interesting time for any minor leaguer. It's usually when they can feel close to the majors. But given your dad's experience at Double A, what were you expecting to see at that level? Yeah, you know, I was expecting to see, uh, you know, a lot of top prospects there. You know, Double A's where you know it's you know the prospect league, uh, a lot of good arms, a lot of high velo. A lot of big bats, you know. It's you know it's where all all the studs are, and there you know there's studs everywhere through the minor league. But that double A is where, you know, you can you kind of see yourself, you know, if you can do it or not. You know, uh, I think that double A is a is a challenge. You know, I got to see it as a kid growing up with my dad coaching, and you know I was excited to see it as a player. Uh, you know, unfortunately with the whole scenario right now, you know we can't play there. But you know I'm I'm just itching to get back to you know to the field and. Uh, I think it will be a good challenge for me. Uh, I thought we had a really good group in spring training. I was looking forward to playing with the guys. Our coaching staff was awesome. Uh, you know, I was excited to get get with them. Um, you know, Tom Sakaris was going to double-A with me as well. Um, you know, so that would be exciting to work with him two years in a row. And, uh, yeah, I was excited, but, you know, it'll have to wait until we get there. So. Mm. Yeah, and uh, just along those lines, what were you most looking forward to specifically about Hartford? I know being around the same group of guys and what you were building in the spring, you want to continue that out through March and April and all that, but getting specifically right. to join the Yard Goats, what were you looking more, most forward to about that experience? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful ballpark. It's brand new. Uh, I've heard that, you know, the fans are great there. It's sold out almost every game or a packed house every night. Uh, I was excited for that. You know, I was excited for the challenge of being in the cold early in the year. Uh, you know what they say, every every big game you ever play will be in the cold, especially being in Denver. You know, if you're in a World Series game in October, it's cold. I was excited, you know, be able to you know, see that side of the, the country. I have family up there, so they would have been able to see me play. You know, I was just excited to start that double-A season, see what I got with them, and um, I think it would have been a really good year, and it's still going to be a good year, but we just got to get on the field first. So, Ryan, looking back at, at last season, um, playing in Lancaster, uh, there is a, you know, an, a baseball internet meme that anything that goes well for a Rockies hitter, uh, everybody nationally attributes to Coors Field. Weirdly, if a Rockies pitcher does well, nobody says that it should be more emphasized because of Coors Field, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, for you having played in Lancaster last year, how much of that do you hear from people? Well, yeah, put up great numbers. These guys put up great numbers. They're in Lancaster. How do you uh, feel like that prepares you for what you're going to hear and how annoying does that get of you've got a teammate who's got a great season or you've had a great season and it's yeah but it was Grand Junction or Asheville or Lancaster or whatever right yeah you know um the wind does play a factor uh in Lancaster for sure definitely a tough place to pitch I give props to our pitchers going out there and doing their thing and you know as a staff we had a pretty good year uh but the look like a lot of people don't understand is Lancaster's a big yard. It's not like a short porch, so you still got to get it. You know, obviously the the uh, the wind helps a little bit, but whenever that wind's not whenever that wind's not blowing, it's you know it's a graveyard. It's a, it's a big yard. Um, you know, and there's other yards in, in the California League too that are very hitter friendly. Uh, so I don't think it's just Lancaster, um, but you know it does kind of get annoying here and that. But hey, you still got to hit the 98 mile per hour fastball. You still got to hit that dirty slider you still got to put the barrel to the ball um 
So I think that's something like, oh, yeah, you, you hit it and it's home or it's not, though. You know what I mean? Sometimes the wind's blowing in. Sometimes there's no wind. You know, sometimes the wind's not playing that big of a factor. Uh, but, you know, it's also, it's also a great place to hit. You know, a great fan base, too, which helps. Um, and, you know, I think the Rockies, uh, you know, do a good job with our affiliates. I think we have great spots to go play. Uh, obviously, some great hitters, you know, hitter hitter parks, and I think that just gets us ready for Denver. Uh, but like, we don't like we don't like to think about the wind or the elevation. We just go out there and how to have good at bats, and you know, drive the ball. And if we get rewarded, we do. If we hit a ball hard and it's an out, you know, that's that's the game too. Um, so we have that mentality of don't really worry worry about that kind of stuff. Just let you know, just play the game. So. Bringing it back to today, um, when you are stuck in a you know a very unprecedented situation right now, like we all are, how are you keeping fresh? We've talked to guys on the on the show over the last several weeks, um, you know, with uh, a couple who have gotten a chance to actually go to ballparks and work out, or have family members that they can work out with, or whatever it is. What are you doing right now to try to keep yourself in a a state where, if we do get the go ahead sometime soon to get you guys back on fields, you'll be able to do that. Right, yeah, you know, you know, I'm really lucky and blessed to have a really good facility in Stillwater. Um, so I've been able to go there almost every day, uh, each week. Uh, you know, we do. I have machines there. Uh, I can work out there, uh, turf. So you know, I can do ground ball work. Um, you know, it, it's hard to get outside with everything being closed. Hopefully, they start opening up some of the fields. Uh, but you know. I've just kind of been sticking to my routine, what I would do uh, before a game, uh, you know, getting my lifts in. Uh, I think the nutrition side is very important right now as well. Um, so just been eating healthy. Uh, but, yeah, I've been able to work out almost every day. So, you know, that's been a real blessing during this time. Also been doing a lot of fishing. So that that's helped kind of pass the time over. So. Yeah, I was going to say your Instagram is uh, full of fishing pics, which are fantastic yeah. and, and make me very jealous as somebody who lives in Brooklyn and can't go fishing. Uh, what does fishing right, do for, for sure. you at a time like this other than just take up a few hours here and there? Right. Yeah. You know, uh, my girlfriend and her family are really big into fishing. Uh, the Arkansas River is right by her house. Uh, so we like to take the little boat out there and, you know, go fish, um, you know, have a fire, and just hang out, just kind of enjoy nature enjoy the time we have together. Um, it definitely works on my patience for sure. Uh, cause like you said, I, I like to catch, not fish. Um, so when <laughs> I, but yeah, it's just a good time to hang out with everyone. Um, and when you do catch something, it's, you know, it's an exciting moment. I, you know, I've gotten to fish for different fish lately, uh, bass, catfish, uh, there's been some carp, some gar, sand bass, striper. So, uh, you know, learning the different traits about fishing, uh, too. It's, it's just been a lot of fun. So, Fair enough. Well, we've been jumping around all your career so far. I want to jump all the way back to 2016 before we let you go. You won the Home Run Derby in Wrigley Field at the 2016 Under Armour All-American Game. You beat out Hunter right. Green and Joe Adele, two first-rounders uh, later when they went in the draft, two top prospects now. I think you finished with nine home runs. Uh, in that it's there's a little bit of a two-parter what's your favorite memory of that event winning that home run derby and the second part of it is if we put you in Wrigley right now gave you a metal bat same thing but with all the adjustments you made since (laughs) how many could you put out you think oh god well we were using wood so are we still using metal or no okay well we used wood then Yeah. yeah 
Yeah, we were using wood at that in that home run derby, but you know, I think the best thing about that was I was going up against all these top guys, and you know, I'm close with all of them. Everyone that was I, I was competing against, you know, I, I'm buddies with, I played with. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, is I got selected as a wild card um, to get in, so I didn't win the competition to get into the home run derby. They just chose me as like in, like the fourth or the fifth, sixth guy that you just participate in. Uh, and the best thing about it too, I think, was uh, Billy Ripken actually uh, picked me as a sleeper. Um, and you know, my first round, I had a really good first round, but me and Joe Adele had to go into a hit off, uh, and I ended up beating him then. And then uh, you know, finishing it off uh, with that that nine nine home runs in the last round was pretty special. My family was there, uh, so that was a pretty awesome moment. But just kind of go out there and let it loose, see some balls go over the stadium. Uh, it was just a great experience. I still have the trophy in my room, um, and that's something I'll definitely never forget for sure. All right, we'll we'll end on this one. Uh, that's that's a great memory to have, and whether you know. The, this is a question we've asked a lot of different guys right now with, without minor league baseball being played. Uh, what is your favorite minor league memory? And with you, somebody who has experience with this, going back to your dad's history in Frisco, we'll even extend it that far back. Uh, you know, okay, Whether it's yeah. then or your own personal memories, what is your favorite minor league memory? Yeah, I'll, I'll do one from both, actually. Uh, that works, yeah, go know, for it. My, my favorite memory, memory has to be, um, at least so far, was my first professional at bat. Uh, I was playing in Idaho Falls against the Royals farm system team. And my first at bat, I hit a 2-2 uh, home run. And uh, so my first at bat, I hit a home run of my pro career. Um, that was a pretty special moment. Uh, when I hit it, I didn't even feel the ball come off my bat. As soon as I hit, I put my head down and just started sprinting as hard as I could because it was more of a line drive home run. Uh, and I remember I didn't even know where the ball went, but I saw the umpire signal as a home run. I just remember yelling across, around second base. Uh, <laughs> talk about uh, an exciting way to start a career. Um, I know there, there's a lot of guys that, you know, a lot their first big league uh, hit is a homer, and and mine my first pro uh, at bat was a homer. I can't imagine, uh, you know, starting my career like that. Uh, so that was definitely a very special moment for me, uh, and definitely a favorite uh, memory for me. Um, Going back to whenever I was a kid in the minors, one of my favorite memories was just being able to see uh, one guy who I'm really close with is Elvis Andrews and just being able to hang out with him and uh, talk to him. And, you know, he was 18, 19 years old when I first met him. Um, so just being able to hang out with him, see how he went about his business as a young kid and seeing him grow. And I think he's had over 10 years of the bigs now. Uh, you know, my dad and him are still in touch every once in a while. Um, you know, and hopefully one day I'll get to play against them. I actually got to uh, play against them this year in spring training, and we, you know, kind of, you know, give a little thumbs up to each other. Um, so that was really that was a really special moment for me. Um, you know, as a kid watching him grow up, and then you know sharing the field with them. So. That is awesome. Ryan Vallade is the fourth-ranked Colorado Rockies prospect, and you can find him on Twitter at Ryan Vallade and the Instagram uh, feed with the, the fishing pictures as well. I go uh, exclusively <laughs> basically fishing and not catching, so I'm envious that sometimes you get to go right. catching because it rarely happens <laughs> for me. Uh, but, uh, Ryan, yeah. congrats on all the success so far, man. And, uh, you know, we, like you, are uh, are kind of tortured waiting for some baseball, but hopefully we'll have it real soon and, and get a chance to watch as you keep climbing toward Denver. 
Yes, sir. I, I, me too, and I appreciate y'all having me on today. And I uh, hope uh, y'all's families are safe. And uh, like you said, hopefully we're on a field soon. So. Thanks, man. Same to you. We appreciate the time. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide is here from life's first pitch to the seventh inning stretch. Whether you're looking for protection for your house, car, pet, or small business, Nationwide offers a wide range of products and support to make sure you're getting the right coverage for your specific needs. Visit Nationwide.com for more information on how we can help take care of what you have today and plan for what's ahead. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, Columbus, Ohio. Benjamin Hill is back this week with more uh, hot, steamy, fresh content from MILB.com. Hi, Ben. Hey, Tyler, and hello, Sam. Um, It is hot, steamy, and fresh content that I am uh, (laughs) providing to you all, and, uh, you know, I'm a hot, steamy, and fresh kind of guy. You know, that's what we uh, that's what we try to put forth on this content, on this podcast, just all the hottest and steamiest and freshest content. And we have a lot of that uh, from week to week. And this week, yeah. we've got uh, some stuff that's already up on the site and some stuff that's coming to the site. Um, but we're going to continue with the uh, one of my favorite current series that we're running, which is Ben's running around each league in the minor leagues and uh, putting out some fun facts about each team. Last week, we talked about the International League. This week, continuing along in AAA, the Pacific Coast League. Uh, in a story that came out on Tuesday and uh, a lot of stuff around this league that I was completely unaware of. What are some of your favorite fun facts in the PCL? Oh, man. Well, first of all, the PCL is one of the weirdest leagues just in minor league baseball, just given, you know, founded in 1903, obviously with teams along the Pacific Coast, um, you know, being like a third major league uh, in a lot of ways before Major League Baseball itself got out to the West Coast. Um, you know, then it's kind of transitioned into being a triple-A and a farm league. Um, and in 1998, you know, when the American Association stopped, then the uh, PCL took some of the American Association teams. And then all of a sudden, you know, PCL teams, you know, in Nashville and Louisville and places like that. So long, strange history of that league. And as I noted on Twitter, you know, there's more teams currently, uh, more Pacific Coast Leagues currently in Texas. There's three PCL teams in Texas, which is more than there are PCL teams in California, which is two. So the Pacific Coast League has more Texas teams than they do in California. So weird, weird stuff all around in that league. Um, these articles are fun for me. They take me quite a long time to write because it's like a lot of research and it gives me an opportunity to kind of poke into my own material. So like in Reno, I just remembered talking to their um, – former marketing director the first time I visited and he was kind of bragging to me how he had snagged in the early days of Twitter the handle ACES just A-C-E-S and how that's still today you know the shortest uh, Twitter handle of minor league baseball uh, you know you had to have a lot of foresight to get ACES uh, as a I Twitter I definitely handle. looked so at that Reno before that. and thought how did they get that? Like, I de- you know, every other team, and we've seen now, especially new teams, have to jump in and do, like, you know, team name baseball with one L because it won't fit the whole – like, it, it got very uh, – everything came at a premium. I, was, I have always wondered how far back they had to claim aces in order to get aces. Yeah, well, you know, it was kind of good timing. They had a, a marketing director who was on the ball with social media, and uh, their inaugural season was 2009, so they were setting up uh, – 
the social media in 2008. So Twitter was kind of new enough then that not everything was taken. And he was just able to get aces uh, for the Reno aces. Because if a team started naming aces, you know, near 2020, he would clearly not be getting the handle aces. It would be, yeah, like you said, there'd be underscores or, uh, you know, who knows what uh, to, to fill it out. Um, so that's a totally random fact, but that's what I like. You can just look at any team and just go in any direction with the fun facts. Um, you know, Wichita, I ended the story with Wichita just because they were last alphabetically, but also Wichita, the wind surge, have not played a game yet. So I was like, what's a fun fact about a team that hasn't played a game? And so just looking at the franchise history, I realized, wow, this Kansas-based minor league team, now the only minor league team in Kansas right now, actually started over 100 years ago in Kansas. You know, it was a Kansas City PCL club who then went to, I believe, Denver, and uh, they were your beloved uh, Denver Bears and Zephyrs, Tyler. Then they went to New Orleans, and then they came back around. I was like, huh, I didn't know that. That Wichita started in Kansas, Kansas, and now they're back over 100 years later. And on and on it went, you know. So there's 16 teams in the PCL, which is uh, the most teams that are in any minor league, I guess tied with what? Midwest League also has 16. Uh, so that's a lot of teams and, and a lot of facts, and it's, uh, it was a fun one to put together. Although as I continue to do this series, I find myself looking forward to the weeks when I'm doing teams that don't have many – or leagues that don't have many teams. Like when I do the Texas League, it's going to be like, sweet, take a half day off. <laughs> <laughs> one uh, thing that I think we've discussed before, um, it was the season before we started the podcast, so we haven't talked about it on here, but the Albuquerque Isotopes, we've discussed uh, their connection to the Simpsons on past episodes before. They were a, a franchise, a new franchise that came in after a year absence when the Dukes left town, uh, and they took the name Isotopes. Obviously, a lot of actual nuclear history in that area, but largely based on the Simpsons episode in which the Springfield Isotopes we're going to move to Albuquerque. When you visited Albuquerque in 2014, you got the story behind the statues of Homer, Marge, Bart, and Lisa, which are on the concourse. And it's a great story that's linked in uh, in this fun facts piece. But also, and I remember at the time, I think you were able to uncover the reason behind this. There is no Maggie. And, and you linked to the vine uh, from 2014 in which you asked, where's Maggie? Did you, ever, did you find out what happened to Maggie? I can't remember. You know, I at this point, I can't remember either. I just, I think maybe, maybe Maggie was on Marge's lap in the original statue, but it didn't, it didn't, uh, you know, travel well or something like that. Or maybe there was just not a Maggie statue at all. I have to look look into that. But um, it is a crazy story. You know, there's these kind of iconic Simpsons characters on the Isotopes concourse, and they were just found at a Los Angeles junk store or vintage store incidentally and uh, how they were you know, driven from Los Angeles to Albuquerque and set up on the concourse, refurbished at a local auto body shop. And still, uh, as you mentioned, Tyler, no Maggie statue in Albuquerque, maybe one of these days, but until then we'll continue <laughs> to ask, where's Maggie? And uh, w- one thing I wanted to point out from this story and seemed to catch fire a little bit on social media after we posted it was you calling Memphis uh, their rendezvous barbecue nachos the most famous nachos in minor league baseball. Uh, not that I have like a secondary one that could be could, that could replace it as most famous, but where did you come up with that phrase that they are the most famous there at the home of the Redbirds? Yeah, you know, a little editorializing. I know these are facts, and maybe one should not editorialize within such a fact-based article. But um, the Redbirds, even before I ever visited Memphis, that was one of the few things I knew about them. And 
it's been a real point of pride in Memphis. And I remember when I visited their food and beverage uh, director at the time saying their rendezvous barbecue nachos, uh, they sold more orders of nachos at a typical game than they did hot dogs. And it just it seemed to me then and seemed to me now that there was no other team in which nachos were so prevalent in the overall food landscape in which they were literally the number one item. Um, they're famous because it's a partnership with a barbecue uh, restaurant that's located real close to the ballpark, uh, Charlie Vergos or Vergos. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Charlie Vergos Rendezvous. And so the Nachos are made with pulled pork and uh, a dry rub seasoning from the uh, restaurant. And there was a couple of years, I believe, 2016 and 2017, in which the team did not sell them, and there was a huge uproar. And then when they returned, it was this you know, citywide, maybe saying a citywide celebration is a bit of an overstatement, but they got uh, tons of good publicity when they brought them back, and there was the hashtag rendezvous returns. And uh, they are still just the team that I hear the most chatter about nachos with when I think of all nachos and all mighty clubs, I think of the Memphis Redbirds first and foremost. So it was a little bit of a, a risky claim to make, but I, I stand by it. Most famous nachos in minor league baseball uh, are courtesy of the Memphis Redbirds. And there's one other fact that I want to bring up real quick that I, I really like just as somebody who, uh, you know, probably makes a, more than my fair share of mistakes in the minor league landscape in terms of team names, um, putting certain names together when they should be two words or taking w- one word like iron pigs and making it into two, whatever. But the river cats of Sacramento, the Sacramento river cats apparently fine people $1. If you spell river cats with one word or lowercase the C or something have, have they ever threatened you with a fine Ben or, or you Tyler? I mean, you write about the PCL a lot too. <laughs> I've never received, you know, uh, <laughs> a legal – Ben doesn't make mistakes. I make mistakes constantly, but I've never received – like I assume this comes – it's got to be very legal. They probably have like a, an attorney on retainer, and they send you a letter that says cease and desist uh, intercapping river cats or something like that. I've never uh, – I don't know. Maybe I've screwed it up before, and they just haven't gotten in touch with me, but Ben doesn't screw it up. Yeah, you know, I learned early, river cats, two words, two capital letters. But that was just one of those things, again, as a result of doing my job so long, I'm just just kind of thinking about every team. And for some reason, that blo- me writing a blog post on that came to mind, and I found the old blog post. Um, you know, it was just a goofy thing they did in 2013. They were saying, like, hey, to all our season ticket holders, corporate sponsors, fans, you know, if you if you don't get our name right, we'll charge you a dollar, and uh, that money will go to charity. So I don't know how long they really did it, but it was just kind of a funny uh, form of promotion uh, that they ran. And uh, in terms of finding any other coverage on it, all I could find was a um, – a, a local Sacramento news story on this uh, thing, and and all they had gotten at that time was seven dollars. So I guess they had found seven <laughs> seven people who'd spelled the name wrong at that time. So they raised seven dollars for charity, maybe a little more than that, but just a just a very goofy thing from the team's history <laughs> when they decided when the Sacramento River Cats decided to find people who spelled the name wrong. Ben, uh, talking about food a minute ago, uh, concessions we discussed last week or two weeks ago. A lot of teams around the minor leagues right now are opening their concessions uh, to fans for curbside service and that type of stuff. If you're missing craving that ballpark food, uh, you can swing by assorted ballparks across the country and pick up some of that. You've got uh, another roundup coming up, and Clinton kicks this one off. 
Yeah, you know, I did it last week, and I was going to leave it at that. But, you know, I got, as you guys know, and anyone in minor league baseball who covers it knows, like, you write about something, and you hear from other people saying, well, what about us? Or we do that, too. Or don't forget this. So I was like, hey, you know, we could all use a, you know, we all need something to write about right now, or at least I do. And so food part two, and it's really Midwest-based, um, focusing on, you know, teams that are offering concessions in different ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, but I had to lead it off with my biggest omission from last time, the Clinton Lumber Kings, um, you know, Class A Midwest League. They have the garbage pail to-go uh, curbside concession that you can pick up for, I believe, just $8. And the garbage pail is an iconic um, concession item in Clinton that is just deep-fried everything. It's like French fries like mini corn dogs, onion rings, cheese balls. There's like eight or nine things in a garbage plate. It's all deep fried, and uh, it's really a sight to behold. And you can get one for eight bucks. And if you place an order of $25 or more, you get a bobblehead too. There's like eight different bobbleheads. You can choose one. So think, don't we all wish we lived in Clinton? We could, Yeah, we could get three garbage pails, like a bag of chips, and a bobblehead for $25. I mean, come on, living like kings over there. Like Lumber Kings, as it were. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's reaction. Perfection. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, but Ben, you, you've been doing one cool thing on Twitter uh, this last week uh, through Economy Candy, which is one of my favorite shops in New York City, too. I need to get on this myself. But you've been getting uh, card wax packs, basically, uh, from Economy Candy and opening them up on your Twitter account. Uh, for everybody to see it's kind of a fun nostalgia trip in some ways i was watching one earlier today with you opening up and getting two herschel walker cards which i was very jealous of but uh you're gonna open up a pack with (laughs) us right yeah i think uh listeners of the podcast enjoy this kind of thing and yes there is not the visual element but i still got something you know over two dozen of these packs i'm just doing one a day thus far they've only been on twitter but you know for the podcast i think we can make an exception and do one so this is a, a $35 bag of uh, a vintage card variety pack I got from Economy Candy. You can check them out. I think it's economycandy.com. I'm not uh, a paid spokesman. I just love that store. And Sam, as you know, you said it's one of your favorite businesses. It's like a kind. It's like a candy store, as you would imagine the greatest candy store in the world was like a hundred years ago. You just walk in there and it's just like all the candy you can imagine all laid out in different ways a real sense of wonder but anyway they also sell vintage sports cards so let's see i'm rooting around the bag right now Ooh, i hope i grabbed one it feels very waxy it is not top so it is donruss i have a pack of donruss and i don't know what year this is it is 1989 donruss so okay. i'll keep this quick i know you guys can't see them but i know i think we all want to know who's in this pack of 1989 donruss First of all, the puzzle, it's a Warren Spahn puzzle that year. So I got three pieces uh, that go towards putting together a Warren Spahn puzzle. Then in the pack, we have Mike Gallego, a mortal Oakland athletic. Bob Brower, or Brewer, I do not recall this man at all. He was a Texas Ranger who played 82 games for the 1988 Rangers. Mike McFarlane, a catcher for the Royals. Ron Jones, a rated rookie on the Phillies. I remember Ron ah. Jones. He didn't last too long. <laughs> the rated rookie cards are sweet. Here we have, yeah, he was a rated rookie. Great design. Then we have Bobby Witt, a pitcher for the Rangers, uh, whose son, Bobby Witt Jr., was uh, 
he was what a number one draft pick, if uh, I'm not mistaken. You guys know that world a lot better than I do. Number two but, overall um, last year, but the original bodies. Yeah. And this is something I remember because I used to study stats all the time. I'm looking at the back of Bobby Witt's trading cards, or, uh, his stats. Um, 1986, his rookie year, he pitched 158 innings and walked 143 batters. So uh, Bobby Witt had some control issues. Then the next year, he only pitched 143 innings and he walked 140 batters. So at his major league career at this point, after three seasons, he had 384 walks and 475. Whew. Anyhow, then we have uh, Mike Fitzgerald, a catcher for the Expos, um, former Red Sox postseason hero Dave Henderson, a pitcher for the Royals, Jerry Don Gleaton, Doug Jones, a uh, noted closer, Doug Jones. What is the mustache yeah, status on that card? Uh, it's a pretty good one. It's pretty good. He's with the Indians on this card. And, uh, you know, it's not like a Fu Manchu. It doesn't go much, you know, lower than his lip, but it's very thick underneath his, his nose. You know, like one of those caterpillar type mustaches right under the nose. And uh, 88, you know, these are 89 Donruss, but 88 was the first season in which he really broke out of the closer. 37 saves. And we have Rick Dempsey. Towards the end of his career, he was with the Dodgers at that point, but, you know, he was a catcher on the Orioles for many, many years. And I was a Phillies fan. I remember one time Rick Dempsey got in a fight with Lenny Dykstra, and I was such a huge fan of the Phillies and Lenny Dykstra, no relation to Sam Dykstra, that I hated uh, Rick Dempsey for years afterwards just because he had the nerve to fight with Lenny Dykstra, who I'm sure was blameless (laughs) in the matter. (laughs) Anyhow, another catcher, lots of catchers in this pack, Joel Skinner pitcher Bob Stanley who I'm sure Sam could tell some stories about former Boston Red Sox Bob Stanley uh, Jim Wallawander 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 a uh, Detroit Tiger pitcher Don August and whoa a big flashy big uh, MVP card for one Andres Galarraga ah, oh there we go the big cat Expos era the big cat in 1988, uh, he hit 302, played 157 games, had 184 hits, 99 runs scored, a league leading, 42 doubles, 29 home runs, 92 RBIs, 13 steals. Pretty solid year for Andres Galarraga, and that uh, was quite a number of years before you know he went went on to the uh, Rockies. And I imagine was maybe one of your heroes when you were a younger, he was he a young man, was. a boy, yeah. He uh, led the league that year, 1988, in hits, doubles, and strikeouts, uh, and also total bases. He was an all-star and seventh in MVP balloting. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. He had a very fascinating baseball life, Andres Galarraga. Missed the 99 season uh, after undergoing cancer treatment, and then in 2000 returned uh, with Atlanta, and I believe he homered on his first swing back after missing a whole season with cancer. Um, he's a he's a pretty incredible guy and played until he was 43. He retired in 2004 uh, after playing a handful of games with the Angels at 43 years old, the big cat. Wow, 2004. I mean, he'd already had four seasons under his belt here uh, in this 89 Donruss. I mean, that is a, and, and this card, it's a long – and this card, it just says MVP on the card. And I was like, did he win the MVP? I don't think so. So I think my – what Don Russ must have done is assigned MVP cards to maybe the MVP of each team, is my guess. Okay. But, uh, it, 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 you know, it threw me off because I just was like, huh, 
it just says MVP and Andres Galarraga. So I was like, well, I guess he won the MVP that year. Who knows? I, I forgot. <laughs> but uh, I don't think so. But he had a well, great season, and he was certainly the Expos MVP. According to uh, baseball reference, Andres Galarraga finished seventh in the NL MVP voting in 1988. Um, but he did lead the, uh, the NL in hits, doubles, and total bases. So he was certainly a solid MVP candidate at the time going into that 89 year. Um, one thing uh, this did make me look up, you brought up Bob Stanley, and of course I immediately had to go to his baseball reference page too. In 1982, Bob Stanley didn't start a game and finished with 168 and a third innings. Like, that would never wow. happen now. That is unbelievable. The guy appeared in 48 games. That is truly unbelievable. Finished 33, and he pitched 160. He qualified for the ERA title despite never being a starter. It's just it was a completely different. It is 1982. We're not talking about like the 30s or 40s here. It was crazy. Anyway, yeah, that is amazing. And and you know what? His, that season is not on the back of this baseball card. And when I was a kid, that was one of the main reasons I liked Tops above all else is because they had a hundred percent you know, devotion to including a player's entire career on the back of the cards. And uh, Don Russ only had the last five seasons, which, you know, it just didn't do it for me as someone who loved looking at the stats on the back of cards. But um, yeah, Bob Stanley, I didn't know this, you know, he was born in Portland, Maine and lived in Wenham, Massachusetts. So New England guy through and through. Interesting, because he was drafted out of Jersey. So it's funny that he was born in, in Portland and came back around. But yeah, that works. We'll take it. We'll, we'll take yeah. whatever New England so ballplayers you know, we can get. Exactly. And all this goes to show, this is just one pack of cards, and it's why we enjoy doing this, is that if we needed to, and we could, you know, we could just talk for an hour or more just based on this one pack right. of cards. You know, there's such, like, memory triggers, and it's a lot of fun. So, you know, hey, hit me up on Twitter at Ben's Biz if you want to talk about these cards I'm opening, or if you have some packs of your own to open, let me know what you got. This is fun. It's a good way to pass the time. It's always good for a conversation. You can also find Ben's stuff, of course, up on the site right now at MILB.com. And uh, Benjamin Hill, go read his stuff and uh, open cards with him and enjoy the conversation. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tyler, and thank you, Sam. And I look forward to talking to you next week when things will probably be exactly the same. MILB.com writer spotlight this week shines once more on the brilliant words of Joshua Jackson. Hi, Josh. Hi. I I haven't listened like that. to your. Sorry, I haven't listened to your. Uh, I haven't watched yesterday's um, the show game yet, so I don't know. Uh, oh, do you want to know the the result? Do you want to know what happened? You don't have to. I think you can I know, skip it. Do you want to know who won? Yeah, I think I know who won. What I'm curious <laughs> about is how much trash talking of my officiating went on because uh, what I was introduced just now as with the brilliant words of. So I figured, you know, <laughs> I must I must have really gotten it, uh, taken it so... on the chin. I actually did not assign umpires last game. Oh, okay. Figured I'd give the, the the crew a night off on our second night of doing these games. So uh, it was more out of laziness. Um, but next time around, I'll be sure to drag you up and down for terrible calls everywhere. We'll put you like uh, down the left field line, and I'll just rip on everything that heads your right. That was That's foul. It lands in the left center alleyway. <laughs> Unbelievable, <laughs> this guy. Terrible. Routine. Yeah. <laughs> Routine fly ball, like right to the left field. 
Oh, man. Well, uh, Josh returns to the show to uh, discuss one of his historical pieces, which is up on the site right now. And it is one about the uh, Miami Sun Sox, who are a team in the Florida International League uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, had some very incredibly famous names uh, of the time who were involved with that team, including Pepper Martin, uh, a member of the Gas House Gang for the St. Louis Cardinals in the 1930s, who was later the manager of that team. But Josh brings us these stories every so often about teams that you probably haven't heard of and that have just fascinating uh, stories about them. This was one of the real top teams, especially the early 1950s. Uh, but Josh, give us a rundown on the uh, the Miami Sun Sox and their uh, their colorful history. Yeah, I think colorful is a is a great word there. This this team and this league, the Florida International League, was really a sort of vibrant and colorful um, team and league. They existed for just a little pocket of history there from 1946 to uh, 1954. I mean, and and I say 1954, but really that 54 season, the whole thing was was done by July and. The Sun Sox themselves had just kind of quit the league, just kind of dropped out, and um, it had, yeah, started that. Uh, the league had started that year, sort of short of teams, and then fizzled away. So it was sort of one of, like a like a bright burning nova, um, really exciting and action packed for a few years, and then fizzled out. And Tyler, you mentioned um, you mentioned Pepper Martin, and I think he is sort of the key figure in the Miami Sun Sox franchise, both because he was, um, you know, their manager and and a player manager from 49 to 51. And because in what might, what you could argue is what it was the most exciting sort of pennant and playoff in any minor league history in 1952, he was, in the opposing dugout um, for the Miami beach flamingos, uh, which, you know, Miami beach is an Island just, um, just across the Biscayne. Is that correct? Biscayne Bay. Um, Just across the water there from the city of Miami. Um, So there's already like, you've got geographic tension going on. And then you've got this factor of here's this guy who was their manager he was fired at the end of 1951. In 1952, he's managing the team to, to rival directly across the bay. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to ask a little bit about that dynamic. You get into it a little bit, but I know it's the Florida International League. There are teams in Havana. There are teams in Lakeland. Some FSL spots we, we know now. But the idea of there being a team in Miami and Miami Beach, what was that rivalry like? between the Flamingos and, and Sun Sox, and how much did they really cross paths, especially at a time when they were both really good there in the, the late 40s, early 50s? Yeah, so it was um, a it was an eight-team league for for the, those years, for the sort of best years of, the, of both the Sun Sox franchise and the Florida International League. So they did play each other a lot. Um, Havana, which is the one city that made this sort of the internet, the Florida International League, um, really kind of dominated the the league as a whole and was sort of a team to beat until, uh, I guess, you, like 1950, the Sun Sox beat 
Havana in the playoffs. Um, but it wasn't until that 52 season that they finished in first place and won the championship. And that was also really when Miami, you know, Miami beach became such a strong contender. Um, before then, it, you know, it was, there wasn't a ton of parody in this league every, every season, even in that 52 season. One of the reasons that the race between the teams was so good, um, spoiler alert, but they, they finished one game apart that, and it, and it, uh, that needed to be decided on the last day of the season. And that also involved a game that the Flamingos beat the Sun Sox in on the field. Then that game was forfeited by the league president to the Sun Sox because of, uh, so a player, uh, Nobby Rosa was, uh, who a former Sun Sox, by the way, um, had been suspended. He'd been listed as suspended by the Flamingos. And league rules stated that, uh, you know, the league needed to be aware that he was being reinstated by a certain time um, if he were to play in a game. He, the league had not been notified, and he played that game, at the, I think, uh, in early August. He, he played in that game against the Sun Sox, and the Flamingos won. Um, the league president says, okay, that game's forfeited to – to Miami from Miami beach. And then in late August, the league board of directors meets and they say, well, it's not forfeited. It's just stricken from the record. The game never happened. It sort of junked out. And so, so that ends up mattering quite a bit um, as the two teams, you know, they're separated by one game heading in, you know, as, as the season ends. Um, but my, yeah, my main point here was that, parody was not the third the the third place team that year was the tampa smokers and they finished almost 20 games back um that's amazing each of those teams won over 100 games miami beach won 103 and miami won 104 like that doesn't happen in minor and it's not as though they played you know we talk about the pcl way back in the day when they played seasons of like 190 games this wasn't the case with the the florida like 152 games i think yeah um and yeah and that's partially that that parody thing that this this was the first year you know that the cubans were just kind of, the cubans was the name i'm not <laughs> that's the name of the havana team um that they just weren't really that competitive they they didn't make the playoffs uh q west that year finished like over 60 games on <laughs> first place they were like <laughs> uh, yeah uh 40 and 111 not wow. not a <laughs> Not a very winning Cleveland ball Spiders club. of their league, right? Right. Um, but so proximity was an issue, and the personalities were an issue, and kind of fueling fueling that rivalry. Uh, and Pepper Martin to kind of circle back, he he did turn this club into something of a winner. That and they became an affiliate of the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, the year that he took over in 49, which was also um, the, the first of a continuous run of years that they became known as the Sun Sox. They, they played as the tourists in 47 and, and 48. But, um, you know, from, from him taking over in 49 through the end of his tenure in 51, uh, they made the playoffs three times and, just a, they were just a real strong, feisty club. 
part of that was that um, Martin was, he was a feisty guy. He Kind of a nut. Yeah, a little, yeah. I, we might we might say more than feisty nowadays. Um, he wanted to fight everyone. He he did he did get <laughs> into some fights, including with a fan, um, just because you know the the fan was kind of riding him too hard. Um, and the <laughs> uh, the the description of it was, I believe, that he wanted to go into the stands and poke the fan. Was how it yeah. was described in a, a newspaper account. <laughs> That's right. Hey, give so him there, a poke, see. So yeah, yeah. So there are a number of you know. Obviously, an event like that is is covered by multiple papers and picked up. Um, you know, I think there's an AP account of it from that probably made the rounds, and then uh, various copy editors can can do what they want with headlines and such. And um, a number. It seems like. The poke was actually a punch. Is how it, is how it, it seems to me. It seems Funny to me that he went and punched that fan, and the the poke is maybe a bit of a softening there. Um, that idea is maybe informed by the fact that a couple years earlier, he uh, <laughs> twice got into into fights with with umpires that <laughs> that resulted in him him getting fined or suspended and. And after one of them, he was pulled out. It was it was uh, in Cuba, in Havana, against the Cubans. And actually, Nobby Rosa, who who we who I just mentioned as having been a Flamingos player who was suspended and had to do with that forfeited game, he had been ejected in a um, 1949 game in Havana, and uh, the Sun Sox were sort of up in arms over his ejection. They were just vehemently protesting it. The umpire said, you know what? I'm forfeiting this game for the Cubans. Um, and Martin just charged out of, you know, charged the umpire and, and he had to be pulled off by police officers. Um, a little bit later, he's speaking to the Miami Kiwanis club. He just, you know, in, in sort of an off season event, and uh, he's asked about that incident. You know, what was going on there? What were you going to do? And he said, I guess I was going to choke him. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you know, now in the in the rumination over it, I guess I was going to choke him. <laughs> right. I guess my plan was. I, guess, uh, I mean, obviously it was a different, a different time. Um, and violence was sort of... <laughs> I mean, I don't want to romanticize this because I'm grateful that <laughs> that no, violence don't live in a at least with a lot of yeah, it's at and least, chokings in baseball games. Right, right. It's at least frowned upon to the extent that if a manager is going to go choke an umpire, that's a major, major. <laughs> it's a major Probably not going to go well. Yeah. Right. It really is pretty incredible, though. Like, if you follow uh, the terrific El Paso uh, Chihuahuas broadcaster Ted Haggerty or his uh, other Twitter account, Minor League Stories, the amount of things that he'll link to or post uh, news stories about or tell stories of from, like, the late 1800s, early 1900s, of umpires being just, like, beaten by players or chased off the field by fans or accosted in the parking lot. Like, it was a or very different versa, time even. back then. <laughs> right? Versa. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes yeah. the umpires would just lose it and go off on people. 
Yeah, you guys had Andrew Batiforeno on a couple of weeks ago to talk about Buzz Arlett. Buzz Arlett lost some time, lost like possibly a big league opportunity because an umpire slashed him with his mask. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's a different time to save the league. Yeah, keep your hands to yourself, kids. Anything to take away (laughs) from A different time. And a fiery sort of fiery team for that fiery time, I would say. It is a, a great story, as all of Josh's pieces are, and especially the historic ones, which are uh, up on the site. Uh, you can go to MILB.com slash history, by the way, and find uh, stories, this story, and stories like this. Um, one interesting footnote, as Josh kind of mentioned at the top of the interview, uh, the Florida International League um, moved on from that 1952 season uh, into 1953. By 1954, though, teams had started to just kind of leave the league in the lurch. The Havana team moved up to the International League uh, as opposed to the Florida International League. Uh, The Sun Sox themselves dropped out by the first week in May, and the league folded in July, which, again, another thing that just like minor leagues back in the day, that would happen every once in a while in the the much more loosely structured and less structured uh, era that it was with affiliations and all that type of stuff. But, yeah, it's been a while since uh, for anything affiliated, there's been a league that started a season and then by July did not finish that season. Yeah, that the departure of the of the Havana Club really really stings um, that league at that time because I mean, you know they they were there was over a million people in Havana. Um, by all rights, it should be you know have been considered a Triple A international league kind of city, um, but in Miami it's like less than half that population and that's by far the biggest city at the time um that's not Havana in that league so it makes sense sort of to to see it kind of fizzle out when you just look in terms of population and you know what fan base you can draw on and when you lose the team that's presumably I mean yeah for years really had had been drawing more than anybody else in the league, um, it makes sense that you're going to run into some trouble. Also, at that point, it's no longer, obviously, an international league. They can't call themselves the Florida International League with any sort of uh, reason for that at that point. So well, let's, it makes let's be careful about that, Josh. There, Don't tell the current Yeah, there is the now. IL now. That oh, touche. 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 The Big Ten has 14 teams. None of these names mean anything. Big I'm waiting for Quebec 10. City to to join the IL. <laughs> you can find Josh Jackson on Twitter at Josh Jackson MILB. And uh, as always, read his stuff because it is some of the best that we put out uh, on the site. And uh, Josh, thanks, man. Good to, good to talk to you and uh, give that dog a, a big hug from both me and Sam. Big thanks, everybody, for uh, joining the show this week. Before we uh, wrap things up, we wanted to, again, thank Ryan Valade and also talk about a couple of uh, cool Ryan Valade-related things. Um, Ryan's father is a founder of a foundation called Keeper of the Game, which is a nonprofit 501c that uh, Ryan told us after we got done with the interview has actually just been nominated uh, as one of the best nonprofit organizations in the Frisco area. Uh, And the mission of that foundation 
is, quote, to provide kids and young adults with special needs and disabilities unique baseball experiences that foster the growth of those individuals and their love of baseball. Keeper of the Game promotes programs that allow these athletes to play, watch, and experience baseball at a very personal level. This is all done with a focus on advancing servant leadership and is just a really very cool uh, concept that kind of goes in line with we see, you know, other organizations around the country that do similar stuff with Miracle League and things that, uh, you know, minor league baseball teams have gotten involved with. Um, but keeperofthegame.org is where you can find information on that foundation. You can donate there uh, and help out with, with their mission. Uh, also, if you are a young baseball player who listens to our show, we know that there are a lot of them. Uh, Ryan and his father uh, on Twitter, you can find at Academy Valade. And on YouTube, you can find the Valade Baseball Academy, where they've got uh, videos and drills and, and stuff that you can learn from and do. Which, right now, you know, if you're a young baseball player who is uh, just trying to keep yourself in a position where you're uh, feeling comfortable about uh, maybe not being exactly in game shape, but uh, being ready to go if you get a chance to play again in 2020 there's some really great stuff there as well but uh, a great conversation and that foundation is just a really really cool thing too yeah no I'm, I'm really glad that he brought that up and made sure we didn't forget about it and we were bringing it up here we know it's it's a difficult time to ask people to donate money to various causes and all that but uh you know as the baseball community looks for ways that they can help it from everything we've heard from Ryan and everything you can see on the website, this money goes directly to kids who could use it. He talked about getting a girl a wheelchair. Uh, they talk about getting balls to, to leagues that can't afford them. Um, this is money that's going straight to kids in need. So that that's a great organization that they put together there. And uh, with that, nearly time to say goodbye. But first, a nationwide prospect fun fact from Samuel C. Dykstra. Yeah, so as we talked about in the opening segment, and as many of you probably watched uh, there Tuesday night uh, in the rip-roaring Game 2 of our MLB The Show 20 uh, showdown, Tyler's team beat my team on some clutch heroics from Julio (laughs) Rodriguez. So to honor the Mariners prospect, I thought I would come to you with a prospect fun fact about Julio Rodriguez. Uh, A lot of you know that last year was a breakout year for him, but just how breakout was it? Uh, among 19 or any teenagers, any minor league teenagers with at least 300 plate appearances in 2019, Julio Rodriguez led all of them in slugging percentage at 540, in OPS at 929, and in WRC Plus at 164. Uh, as many of you know, especially those of you in the Seattle area, he split last year between Class A and Class A Advanced, climbed very quick, quickly in what was his age 18 season. He just turned 19 in December. Um, but somebody who we were talking about you know, did really well at rookie ball in 2018, jumped straight uh, into full season ball, had no issues. The only problems with him were some injuries, but when he was on the field, extremely productive. And it's a big reason why I said this on the broadcast is that if there was anybody in that game who I could project to be a superstar, I think it's Julio Rodriguez. Uh, just his hitting ability was incredible, both at Class A and Class A advance in the Mariner system. Uh, Would have been a question when we were recorded. It was, what? it was, and and during our game and, at the AAA level, he was also bad. Just want to point right that in out. that one game, yes, yeah. <laughs> when he homered off Brent Honeywell Jr., who is a pitcher with AAA experience, yada yada yada. Exactly, game but, winning uh, home run. Yeah, I just want right. to game winning home run. It was okay. game winner. Yes. It was the eventual yeah. game winner. No, I, I hear you. I do hear you. I'm just ignoring you. Uh, whether he was going to start 
2020 at AA Arkansas or, or go back to Modesto would have been something we would have kept an eye on this spring. But the way that the Mariners have tied him and Jerry Kalenic pretty well together when healthy, including in brief trips to the Arizona Fall League last year, would have been a sign that I think he could have jumped straight to Arkansas and the numbers back that up a little bit here. But uh, yeah, keep an eye on Julio Rodriguez, either in the virtual or real space, uh, because I, that right-handed slugger is going places. Yes, yes he is, including to the winner's circle in game number two of our simulated MLB The Show prospect showdowns. Just That's going to be the stipulation next, is that you can never take J-Rod again. That's just, you can't do it. Yeah. I'm not going to allow it. Well, Sam, if you're going to try cheating in terms of what I can have on my <laughs> team or not, I guess we'll see how it goes. Um, no, we've had two classics, and I feel also like since I have won the first two, I will now lose the next 30. <laughs> I hope so. I don't, I don't think my luck can hold out, which is why I have to get all my trash talking out now. Sign me up for <laughs> you losing the next 30. I, I have a pen in my hand. I am ready to sign right now. Take oh, me to that. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, so another win for, for my team, uh, which is the most important thing to take away from this week's episode of the show before the show, as always. Um, no, a huge thanks to Ryan Vallade, uh, for joining us. And again, you can find, uh, the information on Ryan's family foundation, uh, at keeperofthegame.org. Uh, and, uh, big thanks to, to everybody for joining the show and to all of you who tuned into our, our faux broadcast earlier this week. And, uh, for another edition of the show before the show podcast, uh, it's the middle of May. We should have so much baseball to be talking about already in a in a world where things were normal, and it has meant so much to us. I don't know why I'm getting all misty-eyed and serious and deep right now, but it's meant so much to us to hear from people who feel like we're still bringing something positive to them by doing this show every week. And I know I've gotten you know texts and tweets and stuff like that uh, from people thanking me and Sam for still being able to do this every week and bring uh, a little bit of a distraction. And obviously we're not any more insulated from the world than anybody else is. But if we are able to provide you, you know, an hour and 10 minutes of, uh, of a distraction for a week, uh, it means the world to both of us that you still tune in and that you still uh, engage with us and tweet at us and, and you know, get us uh, involved in your conversations and uh, your love of baseball and all that. And it's not uh, an easy or fun time for any of us anywhere right now. Uh, but the fact that we're still able to to share our little community means I know the world to to both of us. Yeah, no, for sure. And and like we always say, the minor the minor league landscape is a deep well. There are so many stories to tell. There are so many other things we can do with this. There are so many rosters we can make in MLB the show. We're we're not just done after two weeks. We're going to keep that going. We're going to keep talking to guys week in and week out. And uh, you know, for whenever we can talk about real news again and we did a little bit here this week with the draft but um you know when we can bring back three strikes and have three solid topics to talk about and talk about players of the month and all that we'll be here for that as well but don't don't think we're going away just because there's there's no baseball everybody out there is still getting ready for baseball and we're gonna get you ready for that as well and i'm gonna keep beating sam on the show so it's gonna be fun for all of us especially uh, sam who's, but yeah, especially I was say, who's me. us in this yeah <laughs> All and of and us. Define each of those words in that, please. Another week of the Show Before the Show podcast, and the first one recorded from my Show Before the Show podcast booth. I got to get, like, one of those on-air signs that lights up when I step inside here, and uh, and also, like, a, a sign for the door, I think. Like our logo, like the podcast logo presented by Tyler Mon's winning teams on the show. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. 
Goodbye, everybody. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.